Okay, so this is our Simon Dome reading group uh, coming back after a bit of a hiatus. Merry Christmas and happy holidays to everyone listening. We are picking up from the text analysis of the criteria of individuality uh, within volume two of individuation. So that is page 653 in the PDF version. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll just mention before we get into it um, quickly that um, the order of the text is a little bit different in the translation versus the French uh, version. I'm not sure exactly why they sort of move things around, but um, yeah, in the French version, there's um, there's the the text form information potentials um, comes first, and then analysis of the criteria of individuality, um, and then allegmatics. Uh, um, but then in the English translation, they put analysis of the criteria of individuality first, and then I think allegmatics comes next, and then form information potentials. Um, so I'm not sure what the reason for that was, but if anyone's following along in the, the French translation, just be aware that there's this uh, difference of, of order. Um, and then there's also this um, little note at the beginning of the text in the translation, which is not in the French uh, version, so I'm not sure um, where exactly this comes from. It looks like it's an editorial um, addition of some kind, but it um, indicates that this text analysis of the criteria of individuality is uh, um, a sort of preliminary version of uh, what eventually became Individuation Volume 1, or, or you know, a, a first um, draft of what uh, ended up becoming Individuation Volume 1. So this text is um, a sort of methodological text. It, uh, it looks at um, what is the method for studying individuation uh, and like how how do we go about studying what an individual is uh, and so we'll see um, as we get into this text what Simon Don's uh, sort of outline of an answer is uh, and then we can try to compare that to what he actually ends up doing in Individuation Volume 1. Okay so I will read the first um, page or so and then we can discuss as usual. Okay preliminary note the object of this study is inseparable from its method a relation of reciprocal conditions, in fact, links the reality of its object to the validity of the approach undertaken. We are utilizing a single postulate that has an ontological signification and a logical or epistemological value. Indeed, we suppose that veritable relation is an integral part of being. This postulate should not be considered as resorting to a method or doctrine that supposes the identity of the rational and the real. We are instead attempting to show that dialectical systems do not contribute a profound enough critique of the notion of substance and that a latent substantialism has not allowed these systems to think the reality of the individual adequately. Furthermore, we are essentially trying to indicate before beginning the study of the individual that this labor will, will attempt to unfold in the hypothesis that neither realism nor nominalism are rigorously legitimate. This labor would like to lead to a critique of universals and particularly to a reevaluation of the thought that supposes classification based on common genera and specific differences. According to the doctrine that will be presented, the generic or specific characteristics are an integral part of the individual in the same way as the most singular elements that distinguish an individual from other individuals. The epistemological consequence of this inquiry would be the following. There can be no science unless it is a science of the individual. A new normativity may be discovered based on this consequence. We would like to overcome the antithesis between nominalism and realism by showing that these doctrines are not valid for relation which can be known analogically. To the extent that the individual harbors a constitutive relation, it concerns this kind of mode of knowledge. The opposition between monism and dualism 
cannot endure in an apprehension of the individual. Dualism is still too monistic to be able to be conserved. It supposes a substantialism. Uh, yeah, let's stop here because there's a section break. Um, so yeah, there's a few um, interesting points in this first bit. Um, so we have this, um, uh, I guess, supposition or um, assertion that the method for uh, studying the individual will be both ontological and epistemological at the same time. Uh, so the the sort of basic idea that Simon Doe starts from in this text is the idea that um, relation has the status of being, uh, as as we saw in the introduction to Individuation Volume One. Um, he he asserts the same thesis there, um, and and so this thesis has um, both ontological and epistemological um, meaning or or value in the sense that. Uh, so it, it is asserting something about um, what what it is to be in general. Um, so an entity is constituted in part by the relations it bears to its environment uh, or the milieu. Uh, and then it's also epistemological in the sense that it, um, it characterizes knowledge as a relation. So uh, because knowledge is a kind of relation, it uh, also has the status of being. So the, the the relationship between the knowing subject and the object known is itself a relation that has the status of being it's something that that is and not just something that sort of represents what is uh, in an external manner uh, so what we sort of need to get to or or where we where we need to get to is this um, genesis of this uh, relationship between subject and object, or this relationship of knowledge, uh, we need to sort of see how this relationship can arise out of uh, something that is not yet knowledge, uh, and and this operation of coming into being of the relationship of knowledge is um, sort of what this method is going to depict for us, or or what is going to set out for us. Uh, another interesting point here is the. Um, criticism of, of dialectics. Uh, and so this is something that we've talked about um, a few different times as we went through volume one of individuation, where Simon Don in general um, uh, distinguishes what he's doing from dialectics. And he offers a few different reasons for um, uh, preferring his approach, his sort of transductive method to the uh, dialectical method. And, and so one um, sort of distinction that he makes is that in his version of this transductive method, there's no moment of negation. Um, so there's, there's no, um, so in his example of uh, disparation of the, in binocular vision, for example, there's a difference between the two images in the image, in, uh, uh, the retinal image in each eye is different from the one in the other eye. Uh, and there's this difference, which brings about the um, perception of depth in vision. Uh, but there's there's no there's no negation. So one image is not the negation of the other, um, and uh, the the difference between the two images is not a, a negation either. Um, and uh, so this is one sort of criterion that he proposes to distinguish uh, transductive reasoning from dialectical reasoning. Um, and then there's also um, at least one passage uh, in. Um, the psychical individuation portion of volume one, where he actually does uh, characterize his own method as dialectical. 
Um, so again, there's this um, sort of hesitation, I guess, or um, ambiguity in Simon Don's thought in terms of how exactly his method relates to the dialectical method. And then there was the, the famous uh, note 95 that we spent um, about half of a session, I think, going over because it's a sort of a one page condensation of like his whole uh, uh, philosophical system, essentially. Uh, and in that, um, in that footnote, he doesn't explicitly use the word dialectics, but he, he um, talks about the relationship between um, the unity and diversity or uh, uh, the one and the two or, or um, this sort of splitting and then recombining operation. And, and all of these sort of images are um, pretty clearly dialectical um, modes of thinking, uh, as far as I can tell. Um, so again, he, he criticizes dialectics and, and distinguishes his own method from dialectics on the one hand, but then on the other hand, he also sometimes identifies his own method as dialectical and, you know, presents these sort of uh, schemas of thought that are um, apparently dialectical. Uh, so sort of an ambiguity or, or um, tension, I think, within his thought in terms of how it relates to dialectics. Uh, and then maybe one more point that I'll mention is um, the criticism of uh, classificatory thinking. So thinking in terms of species and genera. Um, so this is a common uh, motif in Simon Dome's thought. He comes back to this point uh, on a regular basis in different contexts. Uh, so in uh, On the Mode of Existence of Technical Objects, the other main book um, that he published in his lifetime, uh, he criticizes um, a classificatory approach to technical objects uh, that would try to um, assign technical objects to a species and a genus. Uh, so he he criticizes this approach because he thinks that it doesn't um, adequately capture the technical essence of the object. So if you classify objects like you would say um, a mechanical clock and a digital clock are both um, uh, species of the genus uh, of clock in general, um, if you sort of classify them by this approach, then you have completely different um, sort of technical schemas or, or modes of operation of, um, of the digital clock and the, the um, mechanical clock. They, they operate under um, completely different principles. There's basically no um, analogy in terms of the actual functioning of these, um, operate, of these uh, entities. Uh, and then he, he even mentions that uh, a mechanical clock is actually more uh, uh, similar in terms of operation to uh, a crossbow than it is to a mechanical, to a, um, a digital clock. Uh, and so what he proposes instead is to um, um, understand technical objects in terms of these technical schemas, these um, sort of principles of functioning, as opposed to trying to classify them in terms of what they're, the objects are for and, and grouping them into species and genus in terms of their function. Uh, and so, um, again, this this sort of criticism of um, species and genus type uh, classificatory thinking uh, goes along with his criticism of hylomorphism in volume one of individuation, um, because, of course, the Aristotelian um, sort of schema of, of scientific thought is that you uh, investigate objects um, in a particular domain, whether it's uh, animals or um, uh, plants or whatever other type of object, you you sort of uh, group them into species in terms of the the form. So all of the different um, 
oak trees, for example, all have a, a shared form of, of, you know, being an oak tree. Uh, and then you would group oak trees together with, um, I don't know, pine trees or something. Uh, and you would say that they, they fall under the, the genus of tree, or you might have more fine-grained categories than that, but you're still uh, classifying entities in terms of their uh, species and genus uh, based on the, the, the form of the entity. Uh, and then each of those forms is individuated in relation to the matter that is, is informed by that form. Uh, so this hylomorphic schema and classificatory thinking go together for Simondon, and both are to be uh, criticized, and uh, we should instead use um, a, a genetic, or sometimes he, he calls it a constructive mode of thinking um, that uh, is not hylomorphic and is not classificatory. Um, I just wanted to note quickly that the point about monism and dualism, and dualism being too monistic because it supposes a substantialism sort of, I don't know if this is the, he's making the same point here, but it sounds a bit like the the way that he tries to evade Kant or get around Kant in volume one, where he says that the, you know, the Kantian epistemology presupposes the substance, a substantial subject kind of standing apart from a substantial world. Um, and that it's because of the substantialism that, uh, I guess relation is able to think the real in a way that isn't affected by, um, I don't know, the Kantian arguments about epistemology, I guess. Yeah, I think, um, I think that's definitely relevant here, but I think his point is slightly different in that, that sentence there about uh, dualism and monism. I think what he's talking about is, um, um, and we'll see later that he, he talks um, uh, quite a bit in this text about Descartes. Uh, I think he's thinking of Descartes and his dualism um, so the dualism between uh, race extensa, the extend, extended thing, um, and uh, race cogitants, the thinking thing. Um, so for, for Descartes, these are two sort of completely uh, separate ontological categories. There's no uh, relationship uh, between, between extended, uh, the extended thing and uh, a thinking thing. Uh, and then when he has to sort of account for the relationship between the soul and the body, um, he runs into the sort of difficulty of, um, you know, how these two completely separate substances can somehow be related. And he eventually um, sort of uh, has recourse to the idea that it's a, a, a sort of incomprehensible relation. All we know is that God has ordained the world in such a way that, um, uh, you know, actions of the soul bring about changes in the body, and then changes in the body can bring about perceptions in the soul. Um, so we we have a, a sort of experience of this connection, but we don't have any, uh, we can't rationally grasp what this con connection consists in. Uh, and, and then there's also the weird um, sort of um, uh, suggestion that, that Descartes um, proposes that, uh, that the action of the soul on the body um, has to do with the pineal gland and the um, the motion of the animal spirits in the nervous system. So the, the nervous system for Descartes is a, a sort of um, hydraulic system. Uh, all the nerves are tiny tubes that are full of this um, very fine substance called animal spirits, um, I, I guess a, a gas or something like that. Uh, and then the soul is able to, um, so the, the quantity of motion is is conserved, but the, the soul is able to um, uh, 
control the direction of the motion of those animal spirits without changing its quantity. Um, and uh, and so it's by it's by changing the direction of the of the motion of the animal spirits in the nerves that the soul is able to bring about motions of the body. Um, and we'll see. Uh, Simon Dong will mention this doctrine a little bit later in the text. Um, but uh, and, and then he points out, um, I think correctly, that uh, this this schema of operation is in principle unintelligible for Descartes. Um, there's no there's no relationship between race extensa and race cogitans, even if we take race extensa to be the most sort of fine or subtle matter uh, like animal spirits that doesn't get us any further, any any closer to race cogitants. Um, and so it's, I think it's this um, dualism of the race cogitants and race extensa that Simon Don is, is pointing to here when he says it's it sort of supposes a substantialism. So it, it's this dualism of the soul and the body um, presupposes that the race extensa and the race cogitants are two substances, they're two sort of self-contained entities. And then the problem is how do you actually get them to connect to, to each other in the way that they they seem to be connected um, in in the fact that we are capable of uh, bringing about movements of our body and that uh, we can have perceptions that uh, that are brought about by changes in our body. Um, and uh, so what Simon Dong is going to want to do, and, and this, this text doesn't um, go in that direction, it, it's just a sort of methodological preliminary, but um, what he's, he's going to um, develop in the uh, psychical individuation section of, of Individuation Volume 1 is um, an account in which the soul and body or the mind and body are sort of two extreme points in the, the uh, continuum. Uh, and then starting, he wants to have a genetic account that starts from the midpoint and um, sort of brings about the genesis of body and mind as two um, extreme points as opposed to starting from body and mind as pre-existing substances and then trying to figure out how they connect to each other. Uh, so that's sort of his uh, methodological reversal of the substantialist order of explanation. Right. That makes sense. It seems like it's that reversal is, is also tied to his rejection of Kant. Um, but I see what you're saying about Descartes in this passage. Yeah. And so in connection with Kant, um, I think the way Simon Don would, would make that connection is that for Kant, we still have, um, so we don't have the Cartesian dualism in the, in the exact sense in, in which um, Descartes proposes it, but we still have a, a sort of um, alternate dualism between the, um, the transcendental subject and the empirical subject or the, the empirical world, including the empirical subject. Um, so we, um, we have, uh, there are these very strange passages in the first critique where um, Kant talks about how the, the transcendental subject has to be both identical and different from the empirical subject. Uh, there has to be this um, sort of hard to comprehend relationship of identity and difference of the transcendental subject and the empirical subject. Um, and and so in this um, um, relationship, between the transcendental subject and the empirical subject, we have a, a similar kind of um, substantialism in that uh, the transcendental subject is uh, sort of meant to be something self-contained that exists on its own or in its own right. And, and then it 
has a relationship of knowledge to the world, the empirical world, including the empirical subject. Um, and then um, it's sort of accounting for what kind of relationship this could be that brings about a lot of the difficulties in Kant's system. So there has to be some sort of uh, affection of the thing in itself on the transcendental subject that that is um, responsible for the sensible character of experience. Um, but um, as many commentators pointed out, um, the this notion of an affection of 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 the thing in itself on the on the subject um, seems to presuppose the category of causality, which Kant um, elsewhere shows uh, only applies within. The empirical world, we can only use the the category of causality um, insofar as we apply it to empirical existence, uh, and then uh, so we have to sort of understand ourselves as being causally affected by uh, entities outside of ourselves. But at the same time, we can only use the category of causation um, in relation to empirical existence, um, and so confront into a similar type of problem as Descartes does when he tries to account for the relationship between the transcendental subject and um, the empirical subject. Um, I think that's how Simondon would, would explain the relationship of uh, um, Cartesian dualism to this Kantian dualism. Yeah, that, that makes sense. That, that sounds right to me, too. Uh, okay. I can read the next... Oh, sorry. I can read the next section. Oh, yeah, sorry. I was just going to say we should go on to the next bit. Um, so, yeah, if you could read the next... Uh, section to, to the next um, section heading? Uh, yeah, no problem. Uh, hey, welcome, Ollie, by the way. Uh, object of study concerning the individual. Every notion endowed with meaning by reflection can be grasped as an object of study without the need for a rigorous justification. However, the interesting choice can essentially come from two sources. The notion can be a vanishing point toward which the other problems that it involves converge. Consequently, the chosen notion is grasped as the symbol of a privileged difficulty around which other research originates. After examination, a new, sy a new systematic of reflective thought becomes established, and a new typology of the philosophical universe is proposed. A problem, the problem in this way has the merit of concentrating around its formulation a plurality of interrogations in which the philosophical intention emerges. Its role is logical and normative. It seeks to bring about a conjunction of constitutive instances whose power Bacon circumscribes within the, in, the inductive research of essences. Uh, this path is the one that Aristotle and Kant follow when they examine the nature of knowledge. Uh, sorry, I got distracted. When they examine the nature of knowledge. Uh, but in opposition to this approach to normative and inductive logic is a usage of a problematic in which the consideration of the difficulty is the value of a principle rather than a criterion, and in which the central notion has the power to concretize into a plurality of real terms, whether they be enveloped in an anterior problematic or not. This method is the one Descartes employs when, starting from the problem of knowledge, he finds in the development of this problem the principles for the progressive construction of the world of science. Savoir, uh, knowledge was connaissance. From then on, the consideration of the genesis of the problem is merely secondary. It can be relative and arbitrary without this characteristic affecting future activity. Like decision and provisional morality, the initial notional choice is invested with a self-justifying value. It is defined by the operation that constitutes it more than by the reality of the reality it objectively seeks. 
like the cosmogonic hypothesis of vortices, which does not need to be true to be legitimate. Now, should I read this next paragraph too, or should we stop there? Uh, yeah, you can continue uh, to the heading, to the section heading. Okay. Uh, okay. This is the order that we would like to follow. Despite immediate appearances, it is perhaps more akin to the method of the sciences than, than the directly inductive method. Hmm. Every developed science, like physics, reveals the capacity to progressively transform a theory into hypotheses and then into almost directly tangible realities. The prestigious work of formalizing knowledge, savoir, must not forget the no less essential capacity of the sciences to concretize the abstract by realizing it. Corpuscular theories, which are still purely abstract in Leucippus, Democritus, Epicurus, and Lucretius, passed during the 19th century to the more concrete level of specialized theories, like the kinetic theory of gases, the theory of electrolysis, uh, the atomic theory and chemistry, and the, exp the explanation of Brownian motion. Today, it is almost possible to speak of a corpuscular reality, or more exactly, a multitude of corpuscular realities upon which technicians and researchers act in order to impose measurable and predictable accelerations, concentrations, and deviations on them. And yet it cannot be said that the progress of the sciences limits itself to the recognition of founding an old theory by verifying the hypothesis that it allows to, form, allows to formulate. Scientific activity has veritably constituted the concrete based on the abstract, for the concrete that verifies hypotheses is the concrete of a particular space. It is not the concrete of a fact, but of an effect that would not exist outside the universe of thought and action created by this very development of science. By constructing its object with, with the real, the scientific approach, albeit not logically, but nevertheless really, is self-justifying. Our desire would be to follow the second method in order to deal with the problem of the individual. Philosophical thought is not limited to an inductive investigation. To be able to itself control the validity of its approaches, philosophy must be constructive in the order of reality and action that defines it. As a return of the subject's consciousness to itself, it must operate its particular conversion of the abstract into the concrete by producing a system of axiological effects that constitute the particular self-justification of a reflexive work. The necessity of finding the, a way to close the cycle by way of ethics that moves from the concrete to the abstract so as to then return to an integration into the constructed concrete has been expressed by Plato in the image of the long detour at the end of the Makran Hodan. Uh, philosophical consciousness is reincarnated in the sensible. Well, I don't totally understand this section, but it seems like the point about the Cartesian approach is that maybe he's referring to the idea that Descartes starts with this skepticism to reach a principle that he then uses after abandoning the skepticism to construct his own uh, deductive system. And then maybe Simon Don is saying that, because in volume one somewhere, he says that, you know, he's just going to start with physics almost, I guess, hypothetically to see if he can get a paradigm out of physics that can be used to explain other domains of knowledge or individuation in other domains of knowledge, in which case the paradigm would be kind of self-justifying as a basic paradigm. Yeah, I think this opposition between the two um, sort of methods in philosophy is um, a bit obscure. It's not um, 
entirely clear what these two methods consist in. Um, so he he points so he calls them the inductive method, uh, and then he he says this is characteristic of Aristotle and Kant, uh, and then the constructive method, which he takes to be characteristic of Descartes. Um, and I think um, there's yeah the the few aspects of Descartes that are relevant here um, that that Simon Don talks about in other uh, in other places in a, a bit less um, sort of condensed fashion, so that are helpful to understand this bit. Um, so he talks. Uh, I believe it's in Form Information Potentials. He talks about um, how Descartes uses this notion of the transmission of information or transmission of uh, of truth through reasoning. So you start from something, um, you start from the, the foundation, this um, uh, incontrovertible proposition, namely that I am, um, I exist um, in, in the cogito. So we, we have this... Um, uh, there's one uh, absolutely certain truth, um, and then we can, uh, through deduction, we can transmit the certainty of this truth to other propositions. And and he, uh, Simon Don compares this to the way that a chain uh, transmits force uh, from one link to the next. So you have some foundation, uh, some bedrock or whatever, um, and then the chain transmits force from one link to the next uh, in such a way that um, the whole structure is uh, is um, sort of uh, rooted in the foundation, and um, so Descartes' approach um, sort of uh, transmits uh, certainty or truth or whatever sort of epistemological principle we want to um, uh, start from. It uh, it keeps this principle uh, valid across the whole chain of reasoning, um, and the the other bit. Of, of Descartes that um, Simon Rome alludes to here is the um, this notion of a provisional morality. Um, so Descartes, um, he mentions that um, uh, a sort of scientific system of morality would have to wait for the completion of, of science. Uh, you would first have to sort of um, have a, a complete physics that would account for the nature of, of um, of the world and of human beings and so on, uh, and then on the basis of that complete science, you could uh, you could sort of uh, bring about a systematic um, moral philosophy. But of course, we can't uh, sort of wait around for um, um, for uh, you know the completion of science before we actually act, because even um, refraining from acting is a kind of action. Like if we if we just decide I'm not going to do anything until science is completed, that's a choice, that's a, a decision. Uh, and so it's a it's a kind of action as well. Um, and uh, um, Descartes uses this example of um, if you're lost in a forest, um, you don't know where, you know, which way is the, the town that you're trying to reach or whatever, um, then the only way to sort of um, get yourself out of this forest is to um, actually just start walking in one direction. Just keep walking in a certain direction. Eventually, you'll reach the end of the forest. But if you if you um, stay where you are, or if you uh, change direction uh, while you're walking, you you might be stuck in the forest forever. Um, and so there's a sort of arbitrariness in the sense that you you have no idea which direction is the right one or the one that will get you out of the forest uh, soonest. Um, but you you have to sort of arbitrarily select a direction and then just keep walking in that direction until you reach the edge of the forest. Uh, and and so this sort of arbitrary decision um, 
this this principle of um, indifference and uh, you know just selecting an, an indifferent um, direction is is sort of the the basis on which the the whole procedure of um, of uh, escaping from the forest uh, rests and and likewise in our knowledge we we have to um, we we have a sort of arbitrary starting point um, in terms of the hypotheses that we uh, select but then we just have to sort of keep going forward in the same direction of those hypotheses and try to um, uh, you know justify them as we go along and uh, and so um, Simon Don alludes to the uh, the hypothesis of the vortices which is uh, Descartes uh, sort of principle for explanation of the solar system and everything within it. Um, so he, he thinks that the, the solar system is a, basically a giant whirlpool in, uh, in the subtle matter that makes up the, the universe. Um, so there's a sort of whirlpool, um, which brings about the rotation of the planets around the sun. And then there are, you know, smaller whirlpools that, um, that, uh, you know, make the moon orbit the earth and so on. Um, and, um, he explains magnetism and, as well through the action of of these vortices, um, and uh, yeah. So this hypothesis uh, is not something that you can sort of prove uh, as a starting point. You can't um, sort of give uh, give evidence that there are these vortices. But what you do is you start from the hypothesis of the vortex, um, which is a sort of arbitrary starting point, uh, and then you just push forward and see. Um, how many other phenomena you can explain on the basis of this hypothesis. Uh, and Descartes thinks he can explain pretty much everything in the physical world on the basis of this vortex hypothesis. Um, you know, of course, that turns out not to be entirely correct, but um, he, he makes this um, very elaborate efforts to, um, to give explanations for all sorts of phenomena on the basis of, of these uh, vortices. And uh, so Simon Dong is comparing his method to this kind of um, um, self-justifying hypothesis formation. Uh, so what we want to do is not to um, sort of collect instances of individuals and try to see what is it that they have in common. We instead um, present a hypothesis about individuation and then try to, uh, you know, use that hypothesis as a way of explaining various phenomena in the world. Uh, and so for Simondon, this sort of starting hypothesis has to do with the genetic account of individuation. So individuation is always on the basis uh, of something pre-individual. Uh, and then um, there's always this complementary milieu, which is not individuated, which is a sort of remainder of that pre-individual after the process of individuation. So this sort of schema or, or image of um, what individuation consists in he, he draws from, from you know, various physical um, uh, theories and especially the, the idea of crystallization. Uh, and um, on the basis of this schema, he wants to try to explain uh, individuation in all these other spheres like vital individuation, psychical individuation, and so on. Um, so yeah, that's, that's sort of the, the um, idea of this self-justifying uh, constructive method in philosophy. Um, so the, the starting point is in some sense arbitrary. You can select it, um, you know, just because it sounds nice or or whatever other reason that is not necessarily um, sort of cognitively um, uh, necessary. Um, and 
but then on the basis of this uh, arbitrary hypothesis, you you proceed to try to um, concretize that hypothesis to make it real um, in uh, in various ways. So so um, based on your explanation, like uh, for me, it's like the process of ontogenesis. Like um, I I might be wrong. What I want to say is like um, like a uh, Descartesian like theory based like um, kind of like a principle principle based like the world doesn't um, explain all all the kind of like a um, particular or um, individual phenomenon in the world. So by doing that, you we better uh, focus on the plurality of uh, realities, multitude of realities. So it's like maybe like it's, it's uh, coming from connect. If if I understand right, and connaissance, and then it it moved to this kind of if savoir and more like individual knowledge, um, and then it it doesn't stop there, and then uh, the individual in a particular well due to the uh, facts like uh, uh which uh, which uh, inter interact with like environments that constitutes again like the the whole world like uh, the collective reality, and then it becomes some kind of a new New kind of theoretical, theoretical kind of how do I say the theory something like that. So it, it it's like uh, how do I say it? it's it's almost like um it's like I mean continuing process of genesis like um something like that. It, it sounds like to me that way. Is there any anything wrong? Like I mean anything I misunderstood? Uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think. Um... I think Simon Don wants us to understand his method, his approach to philosophy as uh, so he, he calls it constructive here, but uh, elsewhere he uses the term genetic. Um, so it, it's a um, a method in which we um, sort of see uh, the arising of the phenomenon that we're interested in out of something that is not yet um, uh, individuated, uh, and this is this is sort of the the general um, methodological schema that he uses. So you start with something uh, pre-individual, and then you um, see how that uh, individual uh, pre-individual becomes individuated in a particular way, a, a physical individuation or a vital individuation or whatever. Um, and then um, I think you, in your, your comments, there was, um, um, or it sort of leads me to the, the next point that I wanted to discuss about this notion of um, um, uh, making real um, so Simon Don argues that what characterizes the history of physics uh, in particular, but the history of science in general, is not so much um, uh, a sort of uh, process of abstraction where you would start from, uh, say, looking at a bunch of trees, and then you would um, come to a concept of the tree in general, uh, and then you would subsume that concept of the tree in general under the concept of plants in general, and so on, uh, you know, having more and more abstract concepts. Uh, instead, what he what he argues is is characteristic of the history of science is you start from an abstract concept. Um, so, like in uh, Ionian uh, physics, you have like the concept of the indefinite, for example, in uh, Anaximander, um, um, and then you you start with this abstract concept, and then that concept progressively becomes more and more concrete uh, in the sense that it's more uh, it becomes more determined, uh, it has a richer content, but also in the sense that it's something that can be operated on in, uh, in a more concrete sense. So, so he talks here um, 
or I think a little bit later in this text, he talks about how the um, the atomistic hypothesis in uh, uh, Epicurus and you know Democritus and Leucippus and so on um, was was basically just a an abstract theoretical hypothesis, you know, saying that uh, entities are made up of these uh, tiny uh, indecomposable um, uh, sub entities, I guess. So all the ent entities that we're familiar with are composites, um, and this was a, a sort of abstract hypothesis. But then, uh, when this um, um, atomistic theory becomes uh, gets revived in the 19th century, uh, you know, it, it becomes much more concrete in the sense that we have a, a statistical theory of gases, so that we can use statistical uh, physics to uh, predict the properties of gases in uh, you know in a certain um, pressure, volume, temperature relationship, um, and uh, and then even more uh, in the 20th century and, and 21st century now, um, we have uh, techniques for manipulating uh, individual atoms or individual molecules. Um, like there was a story, um, I'll post the link in the chat here, there was a story just the other day about how um, um, there's a, a new method that allows um, physicists to take an individual molecule and rotate it clockwise or counterclockwise um, on demand. Uh, so you can, you can sort of um, control the motion of an individual molecule uh, in a very precise way. Uh, and there was also, um, I think it was in the 90s, there was um, a famous instance where um, um, some researchers who were working for IBM um, used individual atoms to, to draw the IBM logo in a, you know, a, one billionth of a centimeter or something absurd like that. Um, so, uh, um, you know, in, in the development of physics, there's been uh, this concretization of this atomistic hypothesis in the sense that we can actually now manipulate single atoms uh, using, you know, these elaborate technical apparatuses um, that, uh, that sort of incarnate the theories um, that were previously abstract. Uh, and so, um, the the development of of science for Simondon is not uh, one where we sort of get more and more abstract and and uh, in a sort of inductive scale, but instead we start from an abstract hypothesis and then construct something more and more concrete. Uh, and this he also he wants to have um, he wants philosophy to do the same thing by uh, incorporating a, an axiology, so a, a system of of values or um, a set of principles for our action. Uh, so philosophy um, in its sort of reflective mode would uh, uh, go from the concrete to the abstract and then uh, it would um, kind of turn around and go from the abstract to the more concrete. And, and so this is the what he calls the, the long detour uh, using the Plato's phrase. Um, so you, you sort of um, bring about a transformation of the concrete of, you know, the, the way that individual human beings and, and groups of human beings uh, act in the world, you bring about a transformation of this action through this long detour of, um, uh, you know, going through uh, ontology and epistemology and, and this sort of abstract uh, realm of philosophy, uh, and then sort of redescending to the concrete um, by, you know, transforming the system of uh, principles of action that those human beings uh, operate on. So what comes to my mind like at this moment is that like the history of science is like um as far as I understand it, to try to find out 
some kind of a general general theory to explain uh, the phenomena in the world, uh, which are in a way like related to the Newtonian like you know physics, like uh, under the kind of like uh, fixed conditions. Like, but nowadays, like uh, as you know, like quantum theory or ca uh, chaos theory. Whatever, which like uh, uh, Newton's uh, Newtonian uh, physics can explain, um, uh, like along with that kind of uh, flow of uh, science, um, what Simon Dong uh, found at the time was that uh, in philosophy uh, as well, like um, kind of generalizations, like uh, to try to uh, get rid of like a pull out some kind of outlier doesn't mean doesn't mean anything. So rather than that, like uh, finding particularity, like based on, uh, as you explained, like a pre-individuality, like um, amidst um, particular environments, like um, if we just like, uh, for example, like a general formula applies to a particular individual, uh, it comes out as a, a all different kind of um, a phenomenon or, I mean, the expression or reaction, something like that. So what Simone tries to do is like, uh, Previous history of science or philosophy, what it was, what has been ignored, uh, Simondo is tried to like uh, revive its importance, significance uh, by emphasizing like uh, individual individual uh, psyche individuation, and then at the end of the it doesn't uh, stop there. As I told you before, it goes back to the flow of like collectivity again, like uh, which is like a little bit different kind of flow of collectivity, something like that. Yeah, I think it would be interesting to try to, um, I mean, Simon Dong had lots of remarks about individual sort of moments of history of science, but he never, uh, as far as I know, he never has a sort of um, uh, thematization of the history of science as such. He never says, you know, history of science is a discipline that does X and that operates in, in, in this particular manner and so on. Um, so it'd be interesting to look at um, Simon Dong's account of collective individuation and uh, and then his remarks on uh, you know moments in the history of science uh, and sort of tried to put those two things together and see if you could come up with like a, a Simondonian account of the history of science um, and uh, yeah so I you know science of course is a collective endeavor that involves um, you know this uh, um, uh, sort of unification of the work of you know many thousands of people over uh, over thousands of years. Um, and and so there is a, a kind of collective individuation that is responsible for the formation of scientific knowledge. Um, um, but here, I think what he wants to get out of the history of science is this sort of schema or this um, very abstract picture of um, starting from the abstract and going towards the concrete. Uh, and um, it's, it's that picture, this sort of abstract schema of um, increasing concreteness, I think, is what he wants to uh, sort of adopt in philosophy as well, uh, so that um, philosophical thinking would be self-justifying in the sense that it would bring about a transformation of the world. So instead of um, having to kind of uh, justify what exactly, um, what hypotheses we want to base our philosophical thinking on, we would instead have this uh, selection of a hypothesis um, and this abstract starting point and then by bringing about a transformation of the world, that philosophical reflection, that abstract starting point would uh, sort of justify itself by constructing a world in which it is realized. Um, so just like 
how just how the the um, atomic hypothesis, um, you know, through the history of physics, uh, constructed a world in which scientists can, in fact, manipulate individual atoms. Um, now, uh, the task for uh, philosophy is to construct a world in which our um, uh, hypothesis of individuation out of a pre-individual, for example, is something that operates in the world so that um, human beings uh, in their action are um, sort of thinking of themselves and experiencing themselves in terms of uh, individuation. So, um, so uh, the, the, whole, the whole schema of individuation out of the pre-individual uh, would justify itself by transforming the way that human beings act in the world. Uh, so this, it's this sort of um, method of starting from the abstract and then justifying that abstract starting point through uh, transformation of the world. I think that's what Simon Don is trying to draw from the history of physics here. Oh, okay. Thank you. Okay, uh, so let's go on to the next section. Ali, um, uh, would you like to read from uh, Method of Study Concerning the Individual until the uh, next meeting? Oh, right, sure, sure. Uh, method of Study Concerning the Individual. The preceding distinction between an <coughs> inductive method sorry. <coughs> an inductive method and a constructive method excludes the possibility of an intellectual process that would start with a plurality of cases in which a problem of the individual emerges to go <clears throat> toward a unity of the individual's assets, a unity whose discovery could be presented as a solution to the problem. Conversely, we'll start with the simple to go towards the complex and with the abstract to go toward the concrete. This method requires a logic or rather a definition of criteria that would allow us to delimit the object of a research in an ambiguous way. But due to the self-justifying and self-constructive cause of this thought, we cannot utilize any norm external to the chosen field of reality. This is why we have decided to, decided to start with an already <coughs> constituted domain in which the norms of a valid thought <coughs> have already been determined by the progress of constructive experiment. Before biology, sociology, and psychology, Physics provides the example of a thought that is rich enough and formalized enough to be able to be asked to supply its own criteria of validity itself. After having tried, on the one hand, to grasp the epistemological role of the individual notion and this domain, <coughs> and on the other hand, the phenomen phenomenological content or contents to which it refers, <coughs> we will attempt to transfer the results from this initial test logically and ontologically into arterial <coughs> domains. If this transfer is partially <coughs> or totally impossible, the knowledge <coughs> of the reasons for this impossibility will have to be integrated into the position of the problem. The analogical, analogical or <coughs> paradigmatic method that this successive transfers Support <coughs> transfers of suppose is neither founded on an ontological postulate, for example, the rationality of the real, nor on a platonic type of universal law of exemplarism, nor on an implicit pantheistic <coughs> monism. On the contrary, it is founded on the search for a characteristic structure, operation of reality that should be called individual. If this reality exists, 
It can be capable of different forms and levels, but should allow the intellectual transfer from one domain to another by means of necessary convergence. The notion that will need to be included to pass from one domain to the next will then the characteristic of the order of reality that comprises the content of these domains. The knowledge of the individual will be disclosed by the becoming, becoming of its epistemology and the principles of the po possible axiology will be generated by this examination insofar as it will provide a foundation for a postulation of value that can integrate an awareness of ontological reality of epistemological signification into a single act of self-constitution. Right. Um, so here he, um, he further characterizes what this constructed method will be. So it, it's a constructive method that is also an analogical method. Um, so I think we should uh, consider this analogical method as a, a subspecies of, um, of the constructed method. Uh, and so it's analogical in the sense that we start from um, a domain um, that has its own sort of criteria of validity, namely physics. Um, we, we take this schema of operation from physics. So he's thinking here, um, as far as I can tell, uh, of the example of the crystal that we saw in volume one. Um, and so he's, he starts from this uh, sort of example of the crystal and the formation of a crystal and uh, takes this to be a, a paradigm that he can apply to other um, instances of individuation. So he, we can understand vital individuation, psychical individuation, and so on. Um, as um, uh, analogous to the formation of a crystal in some respects, but of course we'll, it's different in other respects. Um, and then he he argues that um, this method um, doesn't require any sort of um, um, presupposition, uh, for example, of the rationality of the real. Um, so this is a, a Hegelian phrase, um, this idea that the real is rational. Um, so we don't have to presuppose that the real is rational uh, to use this method. Um, and, and this has to do with the, uh, the self-justifying nature of the constructive method that he talked about in the pre uh, previous section. Um, so we can use this hypothesis of, uh, or this paradigm of individuation as uh, crystallization. We can uh, sort of start from this instance and then proceed to um, sort of bring about a transformation of our thinking and action um, using this uh, analog um, analogical method. And um, this doesn't uh, rely on a presupposition that, um, that the world is sort of already in line with our conceptualization of it, it uh, a presupposition that the world is rational. We, uh, if we sort of uh, run into obstacles as we try to develop this analogy, if we uh, start from the paradigm of crystallization and then find that uh, some uh, element of vital individuation, for example, doesn't sort of fit with that paradigm, then we can sort of retroactively, we can, um, you know, apply a feedback from this obstacle to the hypothesis and we can transform our hypothesis. Uh, and so there's this sort of self-correcting nature to this um, methodology uh, in the sense that the the obstacles that we run into or the problems that we run into as we try to apply this this paradigm um, can sort of feed back into our understanding of the paradigm itself. So if we find that vital individuation doesn't fit 
um, exactly with how we had previously understood crystallization, then we can use this understanding of vital individuation to um, transform our understanding of crystallization. Uh, and so um, it's sort of, um, yeah, there's a sort of feedback nature to the, the operation and self-correcting nature to this operation. And it's in this sense that um, our understanding of the ontology of the individual, so what it is to be an individual, will be um, disclosed by the becoming of its epistemology, is how he puts it. So by um, trying to apply this paradigm from physics uh, and then having to transform our initial understanding of that paradigm when we run into obstacles and then sort of um, repeating this process over and over again, we um, we come to have a better and better understanding of what it is to be an individual in the first place. Uh, and then um, uh, by virtue of, of, you know, carrying out this process, we develop a, a kind of axiology, so a, a system of values. Um, so we, we um, set out an understanding of what a human individual is and, and how a human individual is individuated. Uh, and then that understanding will um, transform our understanding of values and of the principles of action. Uh, and then we can have, again, that sort of feedback relationship between the principles of action and our understanding of the human individual uh, and so there's a, a kind of reciprocal determination of, of the axiology uh, and the ontology of the human individual. I wonder what Simon Dunn would say to an objection that, you know, he, he really isn't starting without any presuppositions if he's, if he's taking kind of these, um, the results of experiments in, in physics as a starting point for his uh, for his ontology, it seems like there, you know, there there are some philosophers who are pretty adamant about starting without any presuppositions whatsoever, um, and it seems like they would be critical of the idea of starting with uh, just sort of assuming that that physics is uh, can offer a valid paradigm for I don't know ontogenesis in general. Yeah, I think the way Simon would answer to that is that what he's doing is not. Um, is not he's not trying to have a an entirely presuppositionless starting point. He's not trying to say that um, we can start from zero presuppositions and then sort of um, pull ourselves up from our own bootstraps and uh, and then like get ourselves into the system of knowledge uh, without presupposing anything. Uh, I think what he wants to say here is that we don't have to make any um, ontological presuppositions. Um, about you know how the world is or what the structure of the world is or anything like that um, at the outset of applying this method uh, we can um, we can use this paradigmatic method uh, without having any presupposition that for example the world is structured in such a way that um, our uh, conceptual categories are are sort of um, mirrored in the world or anything like that uh, we can uh, because this method has this self-justifying and self uh, self-correcting uh, nature, we can start from uh, a sort of arbitrary hypothesis that may or may not reflect the way the world is, um, and and then we can use that hypothesis to transform the world, and then likewise uh, have that feedback uh, transformation of our hypotheses in relation to the world. Um, and then, in the case of physics in particular, I think. What Simon Don would say is that physics is is, is also a kind of self-justifying um, enterprise in, in the sense that um, 
physicists don't need philosophers to sort of, um, uh, you know, make their work valid um, or to give the, you know, foundations to their work um, that would be lacking without philosophers. So physics is a, a you know, extremely um, successful enterprise where um, physicists are able to, uh, you know, produce these theories and, and then um, bring about transformation of the world in such a way that those theories are realized, you know, in things like manipulating individual atoms and so on. Um, and, uh, you know, so this whole enterprise of physics is self-justifying. It, it's this, you know, elaborate process through which theories and uh, technical objects are constructed and um, corrected and uh, improved and so on. Uh, and it doesn't require philosophers to come in and sort of, um, you know, prove that this, this whole enterprise is valid in the first place. Uh, and then, so what we're doing by taking a, um, this uh, paradigm from physics is not so much um, is not so much saying that you know we we know that this paradigm is valid because it's it's used in physics. Um, what we're doing instead is taking uh, an example uh, or an exemplar from a domain that has already produced um, this sort of. Um, uh, formalized knowledge, so this um, very abstract knowledge, you know, physics physics as it's practiced now involves um, some pretty advanced mathematics uh, and is is very um, remote from, say, like our uh, our immediate experience of the natural world. Um, um, and so you can start from this very abstract um, paradigm drawn from physics, and then you can uh, proceed to concretize it um, by, you know, transforming the world uh, and then having that feedback nature of uh, the world transforming our, our concepts as well. Um, and, uh, and so physics here is, is just a, a sort of um, example of a field that, or a, a human enterprise that has produced, a, a, you know, this very abstract schema of thought that we can start, um, we can take as a, a starting point and then apply this self-correcting uh, method to it. Um, and so we can just as well, we could just as well take, um, um, you know, another domain of knowledge um, if, we, if we felt like that, that domain of knowledge was sufficiently formalized or sufficiently abstract to serve as a starting point. Um, so physics here is, is chosen just because it has that um, degree of abstractness that we can start from and then proceed to concretize it. Oh, I, I have question of uh, the the expression of a unity of individual essence, a unity whose discovery could be presented as a solution to the problem. Here, uh, a unity of individual essence. What does it refer to? Is it um is it kind of like a does it have to do with the uh, kind of Spinozian kind of unity something? Actually, I I have no particular specific idea on, on on that but the i'm just wondering like uh here unity is like uh, something beyond the individual domain and yeah. and and then yeah uh, and then uh, a possible sec, sec, second question is like uh simungdong's like a views perspective on this all uh all kind of ideas can you say like uh, anthropocentric like uh here i mean individuals individuals uh uh, I mean, he focuses on individuals, so that should be human beings, and then uh, 
can you say like uh, his ideas like uh, really anthropocentric and then um, I I didn't totally uh, read read a uh, technical object or other book like a Dumont or something like that and then <clears throat> uh, re regarding like a oh, 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 you know like a uh, speculative like a uh, the philosophy which is like a uh, cur currently like a quite popular one like objects for him like what does it mean by that so a uh, question uh, goes uh, to go three like first one is like uh, the meaning of unity of individual essence and the second one is like uh, his idea is like anthropocentric third one is like uh, objects what does it mean to him right um yeah so that first bit about the unity of the individual's essence um so here he's he's um talking about the inductive method, the one that he doesn't want to follow, so and the one that he attributes to Aristotle and Kant. Um, so he says, in this method, we start from a bunch of problems about individuals um, or about the nature of the individual. We take these individual problems or these uh, this set of problems, and then we try to find um, a sort of uh, unity of the individual's essence um, where, um, where the... Uh, this one sort of uh, conception of the nature of the individual would solve all of these different problems at the same time. Um, so we we might have a problem of individuation in the physical realm and then in in the vital realm and the the, the uh, psychical realm and so on. Uh, we we might have all these different problems of the individual, and then we would try to um, find a sort of um, general concept of the individual that would apply to each of these realms and solve all of these problems at the same time. And so for Simondon, this is not what he um, what he um, uh, sort of wants to do um, as as his method. He wants to instead um, start from a, a paradigm uh, instance um, the in physics and um, and then uh, sort of proceed to concretize that uh, that paradigm, that abstract uh, uh, paradigm, and then uh, use the the sort of self correcting, self-realizing character of the theory uh, to go forward. So instead of um, collecting a bunch of examples and then finding a, a general uh, sort of unity or, or a general solution to all these problems, we start from one uh, type of problem and then try to apply the schema of thought that it generates to other problems. Um, so yeah, that first bit is, is um, he's talking about the, construct, the uh, inductive method, which is not the one that he wants to follow. Um, and then the second question about anthropomorphism, I think um, I think for Simondon, what he would say is that it's what he's doing is not anthropomorphic in the sense that um, he starts from a, an extremely abstract um, physical paradigm, uh, which has nothing in particular to do with human beings. So, you know, crystallization is something that that um, as far as we know, happened long before any human beings or even any living beings existed on Earth. Um, you know, there was crystallization in the early days of the earth, um, you know, when, when it was in the first billion years or so when there were no living beings. Uh, and there's presumably crystallization going on on uh, the moons of Jupiter or, or wherever, um, you know, other planets outside the, our solar system. Uh, so the, this whole schema of crystallization, uh, yes, that's uh, the archifossil of, of, uh, of Mayasu, um, so the, this this whole system of crystallization, or this whole um, schema of crystallization, is something that is um, independent of any um, sort of human uh, 
you know, process of individuation or, or any connection to the human individual as such. Um, and, and we can take this very abstract schema of, uh, of the formation of a crystal and um, we can use it to understand uh, other domains of individuation, including human individuation. Uh, and so it's, it's almost a, a reverse of anthropomorphism in the sense that we are using a physical schema to understand human beings as opposed to using a, a human uh, sort of image to understand uh, crystallization. Um, so we're, we're trying to understand individuation on the basis of this physical schema um, and applying this physical schema to other domains of individuation. And, and this schema is something that uh, doesn't have anything in particular to do with human beings. Uh, and then the last question quickly about the, um, the object. Um, yeah, so he in the, the other main book is uh, on the mode of existence of technical objects. And so in that book, he, he um, I think, is also doing something, a kind of counter anthropomorphic exercise in the sense that he wants to understand technical, technical objects as having reality outside of um, or having existence that is not dependent on human uses for those technical objects. So there's a schema of operation of a technical object um, that uh, is independent of what particular use we might have uh, for that technical object um, and how that technical object is sort of inserted into human interests and uh, desires. Uh, and so he talks about, for example, um, how uh, in the evolution of the car, the, the sort of um, basic technical schema is in some senses obscured by the addition of all kinds of um, sort of conveniences like, you know, power steering, power windows, et cetera, all these um, things that make uh, make cars more sort of um, consumer friendly as opposed to developing the actual technical schema of a car. Uh, and so um, this sort of evolution of the car to be more consumer friendly is, is um, uh, a sort of humanization of the car. It's a kind of um, insertion of the car into human desires uh, into this framework of human desires. Um, and, and he also, you know, connects this with the whole industry of marketing, um, that, uh, um, you know, power windows are represented as being, uh, sort of, um, you know, an instance of progress and the development of technology. Uh, and then that, that, you know, turns, um, manual windows into something that, that seems antiquated. Um, and, and this is, all has to do with, you know, the way that cars are marketed to uh, consumers uh, as opposed to um, an actual development of the, the technical schema of a car as such. And, uh, and so what I think Simon Doe is trying to do is to um, sort of purify that uh, technical essence of a car or technical schema of a car and um, uh, separate it from its insertion into human social relations and human desires and so on. Uh, and, and so grasping technical objects um, without having to sort of uh, relate them to human desires and, and interests. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, I, I would think about that more and then very helpful. Thank you. <clears throat> yeah, no problem. Um, yeah, maybe... Um, since Angus has to go, maybe we can stop here for today and just do a uh, another shorter session next time where we can finish the uh, um, this text. Uh, we have, I think, about four pages left. Um, um, how does that work for everyone? 
Yeah, yeah, that's that sounds great. good. Yeah, good, good, good. Then next time, then that will be next year, right? Um, yes, I think so. Let me just take a look. Um, yeah, so that would be um, possibly January first. Uh, let's discuss that um, in the chat. We can just see like if everyone's available on January first. Um, if mm -hmm. not, we can try um, for the second for the Monday after. But uh, yeah, let's um, let's discuss that over over the chat in the next uh, couple of days. That sounds oh. good. Okay. Uh, I was just gonna say like. I don't think I had really realized until until I read, you know, that Heidegger and the Kant and Meosu, just how it seems like Simon Don is just on a he's sort of like a totally the other end of the spectrum in terms of you know Heidegger would emphasize the the kind of everyday uh, human aspect to as being kind of the primordial the most original, I guess, mode of, of the being of objects. Whereas for Simon Don, it's almost like seen from the outside of that, of that viewpoint where you're looking at the car as purely present at hand and um, purely kind of, a kind of, uh, I don't know, it's almost from like the viewpoint of the machine itself, um, independently of the, the, I guess, uh, more artisanal and human, phenomenological viewpoint i think yeah i think that's um i think that's mostly right um but what i would say i think is that um for simon do so he doesn't want to treat the car necessarily as present at hand in the sense that it would be a sort of an object of knowledge it would be something that sort of sits there independently of us as um knowing subjects that sort of look at it um from outside um what he wants to do is to look at the functioning of the car and abstract this sort of schema of functioning of the car uh, or a schema of operation of the car. So this, he talks about this technical essence that has a genesis through a lineage um, in the sense that, uh, um, you know, a technical object like a car is the product of um, earlier research into uh, in internal combustion engines. Uh, so there's a whole history of internal combustion engines and, uh, and how that is realized in uh, in the car, um, and uh, and you know that lineage might pass through various other kinds of technical objects. Like he talks about how um, um, old car engines um, can actually be removed from the car and used to power a boat instead. Um, they're they're sort of versatile and can be applied to other domains of uh, of um, you know human needs or human desires. Um, and uh, yeah, so he wants to sort of abstract this technical essence um, of a technical object. And, and that technical essence is, is something that's never sort of um, fully realized in a particular technical object. Uh, it's something that is, uh, becomes more and more concrete as a, a technical lineage progresses. Um, so in, in early internal combustion engines, you have like um, the cylinder and then a, a radiator um, separate from the cylinder which serves to um, diffuse heat uh, and then in later more concrete uh, internal combustion engines you have uh, the cylinder has um, sort of um, uh, veins in it that um, serve the same function of diffusing heat but they're part of the cylinder itself um, so that um, instead of having like two abstract entities that um, have independent functions within the whole. You have one more concrete entity that has multiple functions, um, 
And so he takes this to be the sort of the, the general um, uh, principle of evolution of technical objects. They become more and more concrete. They, they sort of realize the technical essence in, um, in this more concrete form as opposed to this uh, abstract form that, that you start with. Uh, and um, yeah, so the, this technical essence is something that we can only grasp by uh, tracing the history of the uh, technical lineage. Um, uh, and it's not something that is um, sort of um, uh, manifest to us just by looking at a car, or even, even if you sort of take apart the engine or something like that, you have to trace the whole history of evolution of that car. I see. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's not, I can see how the present at hand uh, notion doesn't really apply to that. Yeah, and it's, uh, that, that whole book, I mean, we, we did a, a whole reading group on that before we started Individuation, but it's a, it's a very interesting book, um, not just for its uh, sort of analysis of technical objects, but then also part three, uh, I think is the most interesting part of the book. It's, it's a sort of genetic anthropology um, where he, he gives a, um, I think he is thinking of Heidegger to some extent there in, in this notion of um, modes of existence or modes of being in the world for uh, the human being. Um, but he, he gives an account of um, how these different modes of existence um, are uh, sort of genetically related to each other. How um, So starting from the, the most basic mode of existence, which he um, identifies with magic, um, the magical mode of existence uh, sort of splits into religion and science, and then each of those splits in turn. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, as, as a sort of genetic um, anthropology um, um, where, um, yeah, the, each mode of existence uh, brings about a split into alternate modes of existence. That's really interesting, uh, especially in light of the, the science and faith thing in, the, in volume one, where they are seen as incomplete halves of what should be, uh, I guess, a unified process. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that's a, a sort of um, recurring theme in his work, um, this kind of not a, not a unification of two opposites, but finding the um, starting point out of which those two opposites are, are um, generated and, and become opposites in the first place. Uh, I think that's like a, a sort of general methodological um, uh, principle for him to, to try to find that starting point between two opposites out of which they're generated. Right, yeah. That's, that aspect of Simon Don always makes me think of Derrida as well. So it seems like a, and Derrida is always kind of trying to do the same thing it seems yeah my my knowledge of, of Derrida is pretty limited but um yeah I I think that would be interesting to to try to compare the two and see you know to what extent the, their methods are are similar and to what extent they're different um I know Stiegler um is someone who right. uh you know works on uh Derrida's work and Simon Don's work at the same time and and sort of um uses both together um, so maybe that would be a a, a place to uh, to look to to try to identify to what extent their methods are are similar or different. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I've been meaning to someday I, I will have time to to pick up tex techniques in time. Yeah, I have it on my list as well. I haven't. Uh, I've only read a little bit of Stiegler and uh, uh, you know don't really know his work well. Yeah, same. Um, but yeah, so if there's no other uh, comments or questions, then I guess we can. Um, close today's session and then pick up uh, and uh, try to finish this text next time. That sounds sure. good. Okay, great.
Uh, so thanks for coming out and uh, hope to see you next week.